Why would we bother to go back to a book that was written 2,600 years ago? The Bible itself will turn you atheist faster than anything. When you take the scriptures disclosed over centuries, 40 different writers, 66 books, and you see the prophetic schema, immediately you see the supernatural. This is madness. This is madness. Who can believe this? I believe in God on the basis of rational evidence. Faith and reason are not contrary to each other. Science doesn't know everything. That is still no grounds for saying, oh well, magic did it. Hey, I want to welcome everybody here today, and uh, especially want to welcome everybody out at our Stone Canyon and Vertigris campuses and everybody that's online. Uh, glad to have you with us, especially if you're a first-time guest with us. Uh, glad to have you here. Um, hey, before we jump into the message, I want to uh, just have a little housekeeping moment here, a little family uh, moment, uh, just a little update. Um, a couple weeks ago, we had a, showed a video, if you were here, of uh, Todd Clark with the Slingshot Group, who uh, we've uh, partnered with in helping us fill our senior minister position here. And uh, just want to give you an update of where that's at. We've uh, received uh, a name of applicants, people, guys who are uh, very interested in being here, and interviews are starting this week. We'll be interviewing every one of them. And uh, so I bring this to you today just to say, pray, all right? This is a major time, big time right now as we're going to be uh, meeting with these guys and praying with them. And uh, you know, we, as a family, uh, this is big, and we need to be definitely praying that God leads us to the right guy at the right time. So just want to give you that update today. Progress is being made, and, and, uh, but in the meantime, in this transition, we keep pushing on and uh, keep praying for God to do great things through His church, as He is doing, all right? Good things are happening. Hey, uh, we started a series last week called Think. And hopefully you were here for that as Chad Ragsdale from Ozark Christian College came and shared with us, kind of kicked us off, and, and uh, with the whole idea of taking every thought captive, that scripture that where we're challenged to do that. And I love one of the statements that he made was uh, that beliefs have consequences, all right? How we believe determines much of where we go in life and how we, uh, how we act in life and how we treat others and, and just... Every facet of life is impacted by our beliefs. And so we've got, to be, uh, we've got to pay attention to how we think. And especially when it comes to our faith, we've got to think about it. Sometimes we as Christians, we, we fall uh, into that trap, if you will, of just taking everything for granted, especially if you grew up in the church like me, and it's just you've always heard it, you've always known it, and sure, it's always, it's always true, the Bible's always true, the preacher's always right, <laughs> right? <laughs> and sometimes we are accurately depicted as checking our brains at the door when we walk into the room here and just think, okay, let God do His thing. But it's important that we think, that we think about God's Word. We think and reason and not just have blind faith as we're often uh, described as having. And so this week, we want to think about the Bible. We want to ask this question, why can I trust the Bible? You ever thought about that? 
Why can't I trust the Bible? If you are a person of faith, where, wherever you are, maybe, maybe you've been in the church a long time and, and that, that, that thought probably has crossed your mind. Why, why do I t- trust it? Why, why do I see this as God's holy word, true, absolute truth? Uh, maybe you're, you're a new believer or kind of young in the faith and you're still trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what this book really is and is it true, is all of it true, can I trust all of it, maybe you're there, maybe, maybe you're here and you're, you don't believe and, and you're just investigating, Whoo, man we're glad you're here, but you need to be asked that question, is it true, why can we trust it to be true? There's a little boy that came home uh, on the way home from uh, church one day, and after Sunday school, his mom asked him that question. You know, parents, you ask this question. What did you learn at church today, Bobby? And, uh, of course, he, he had the answer, man. He knew it. And because that day, they talked about the Exodus, when, when God's people, the Israelites, were let loose from Egypt, and, you know, the plagues and all that, and man, he just, he's telling all the story. Man, the, God did the plagues, and then, and then God's people took off, but then Egypt, the Egypt, Egyptians, they, they started to chase them and follow them, and then they came to the, to the sea, and then Moses got on his walkie-talkie, and he, aired, he called in air support from the Israeli Air Force, and they bombed the Egyptians, and then the army put out a pontoon bridge, and then the all the Israelites went across to the other side. And mom's going, what? <laughs> really? Is that really what they taught you? He says, if I told you what the teacher said today, you would, you would never believe it. <laughs> Sometimes we kind of feel that way, and especially people in the world feel that way when they read some of the stories of the Bible. Really? A guy got swallowed by a big fish, stayed in there for three days? Really? The whole world was flooded, and you know, and, and it's like, really? Can we trust that? Can we believe that? And sometimes we kind of pick and choose what we, what we want to believe in the Bible, because some things just seem a little too far-fetched. The the warning on that is, if that's the faith you have where you pick and choose, um, and you still want to believe in a God, then you begin to believe in a God that you fashion after yourself because you're picking and choosing and you're making him like you want him to be. Others who read those stories and think they're way too outlandish to be able to believe just choose not to believe in a God at all. But can we, can we trust this Bible? Now, here's some of the facts about the Bible, all right? This unique, remarkable book that we have. It's actually a library of books. Many of you know that, 66 books uh, that have been written over a span of somewhere between 1,500 and 1,600 years for it to come together. And, And there is no other book in history that took that long to put together, all right? That is the longest stretch of any book. Forty different authors from all different types of lives and and backgrounds contributed to this book. It's written by kings, servants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, doctors, military leaders, herdsmen, and an IRS agent even. Wrote from different places like deserts, dungeons, palaces, islands, battlefields, hillsides, and, and prison cells. Three different, from three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Sixteen different countries. Three different languages that it was written in originally. The Hebrew, Aramaic, and, and Greek. 
And the writings cover all kinds of topics, many of which are very controversial, yet throughout all of it, with all the different authors, over all the span of time, it's united. It's all in unity. How does that happen? Now, some might question that. Well, are you really sure it's all united? Yes, it is. There's only one way that something that amazing could happen is if there was one master architect who put it all together throughout the years, who inspired man through the Holy Spirit to write and put things down for us today to have as God's holy word. So if you think about your faith, this question has probably crossed your mind again. Why can't I trust this Bible? Why can't I trust the Bible? Well, I want to just, I want to give us five reasons today, and then we'll kind of wrap it up with some other stuff at the end here. But five reasons why I believe we can trust the Bible. Again, some of you, you've heard messages on this. Maybe you've even taught lessons on this. You know this. For others, maybe this is new. But I want you to think as we walk through these things here today. First off is this. The Bible is textually credible. The Bible is textually credible. Credible. Uh, we got to ask these questions. Is the text we have reliable? Is the Bible we have today what was written by those original authors? Now, the integrity of any historical document is backed up by the number of manuscripts that we have of that document, okay? That's how uh, people, um, scholars, will classify whether a document is trustworthy or not, a, a historical document. And so, for example, as we look at some of the ones who are uh, well-known, okay, Plato's writings, okay, uh, very well accepted, nobody argues over those, those writings of Plato, we have seven manuscripts of, okay, seven. Aristotle's writings, we have 49 of uh, his man, uh, manuscripts that have been written down or, or passed down, 49, okay, not originals, but have have been uh, scribed down uh, later after those original writings. Actually, for most of those, are hundreds of years after the original writings. But nobody argues it. Homer's Iliad, 647. Okay, whoo, that's a big one. But the Bible is the most documented of, our, of all historical documents. Now, you might guess, maybe there's 700. It's more than the Iliad. 1,000. The Old Testament, let's look at that, okay? The Old Testament, there are 14,000 manuscripts that can be studied, that can be compared to let us know, to help us trust, to know that we have a reliable document. And in all those manuscripts, as they put them out, as they study them, there is a, only a variation uh, of one in every 1,580 words. And those are most all just spelling differences. Now, many critics would say for some time that, well, um, the, the latest one we had was 1,300 years after the originals. But then something happened one day back in 1947. A little shepherd boy was out in the desert and he threw a rock down a hole and he heard a pot break and he climbed down the hole and he found what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were um, hidden down this cave for years and years and years, centuries, centuries. And they pulled them out. Scholars began to study these. And the critics of the Bible 
began to realize what they had here was not good on their part. Matter of fact, the full uh, documentation of these Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in 1947 would not be fully revealed until 1990. They kind of tried to keep a hush on them. Because what they found was the Dead Sea Scrolls backed up all the Scripture they were written of. 95% accuracy. And again, those little 5% differences were little spelling differences throughout. Once again, the critics were silent. They, didn't, they couldn't say anything to these. It only, once again, validated the Old, the, the old Testament. Now, New Testament. We have 14,000 of the Old Testament. How many do we have in the New Testament? We have 24,000 of the New Testament. Full manuscripts or partial manuscripts that have been written down by scribes who took so had such a meticulous uh, work ethic as they would write down, copy down from the originals. 24,000, and there in these manuscripts, there is only a difference in one in every 1,000 words. And again, we know where they are, and they're mainly little spelling differences. There's no doubt that Textually, the Bible is a credible book. It's the most documented historical manuscript there is. And nobody wants to question all the other ones, but everybody scrutinizes over this one. Now, people may not like what the text says, but it is what the authors wrote. We know that. So, we can, we, can, we can prove that. Most, actually, a lot of scholars and critics, many of them have even moved past that because they've realized there's not an argument there. They really can't win that argument. But it doesn't mean they believe it. It doesn't mean that the Bible is true. And so the next thing is this. The Bible is historically credible. Historically, it's credible. The stories that it tells are credible. How do we know that? Well, uh, one of the main ways is through archaeology. There have been well over 25,000 archaeological discoveries that substantiate and validate the Bible. Over 25,000. Let me just talk about a couple of these real quick. One one story, a character in the Bible that many uh, critics uh, discounted or or thought was made up was, was Pilate, Pontius Pilate. They believe that he was dreamed up, just an evil villain, you know, to make the story better. Until one day, a uh, helicopter, a military helicopter was flying along the beach and saw a circle in the sand. Very quickly, some people converged on that site. They began to dig, and they found the city called Caesarea Philippi. And in that city, they found a huge amphitheater. And at that amphitheater, they found a plaque where it was that, that city was dedicated to the man who built it, Pontius Pilate. And the critics were silent. And, and there have been story after story like this. It happened with Belshazzar back in the book of Daniel. They thought he was made up because of the time that he was supposed to serve, it was another king. Uh, and, and, but then they found it. They found a chronicle of that era where his dad, who was king, was left for 10 years to go into battle and left his son Belshazzar to rule. 
Once again, the critics were silent. Belshazzar, uh, Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, Sodom and Gomorrah, same thing. Then there was another one known as the Hittites. We read about them in the Bible from time to time. The Hittite nation, again, critics said there's no way that it existed. It was made up. There's no proof that this nation existed. But in 1906, archaeologists were digging around and they found the capital city of the Hittite nation. And after they kept on digging, they found 40 cities of the Hittite nation. It's almost as if, as archaeologists dig, every time they turn a spade, they find something that validates the Bible. Historian Nelson Gluck, he says this, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. None. Every discovery in archaeology backs up the Bible. Archaeologist William F. Albright says this, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. Archaeology backs it up. It is historically credible. But not only that, let's go in and talk more about the New Testament even. That it was written, as we look at that, it was written by eyewitnesses or those who interviewed, talked to eyewitnesses. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John were themselves eyewitnesses. John talks about it over in 1 John, matter of fact. Uh, 1 John 1, 1 through 3. Here's what he says. Catch this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. You think John's trying to get a point across? (laughs) What I'm talking to you about, I saw with my own eyes. I saw Jesus. I heard Jesus. I'm giving you firsthand experience. Most of the writings, uh, many of the writings, some, some people debate, critics want to debate how long after those original, uh, how long after Jesus we have uh, the writings, uh, the, the authors wrote those uh, original writings, and some want to dispute that. Some of Paul's are, are dated as close as 15 years after Jesus. The Gospels, some of those as close as 30 years after Jesus, and many would argue that there's no time in there to be able to create a legend or a myth because there's still eyewitnesses. Paul speaks about that in several places about, hey, don't you know Jesus appeared to 500 people all at one time? Matter of fact, why don't you go talk to them? <laughs> They're right over there. If, if the things that they talked about were not true, people would have been standing up trying to discredit them, but they didn't. Because the eyewitnesses were still there, and they were able to say, Yep, I was there. That's just how it happened. And you couldn't argue with that. John Warwick Montgomery used to be the dean of 
Greenleaf Law School says this, the evidence of the Bible's historicity are so strong that if you were to apply the federal rules of evidence, it would stand up under any court of law as reliable. The Bible passes a historicity test. There's so, many, so much more information we could go into uh, on that. Uh, the number three, three thing is uh, the Bible is scientifically credible. The Bible is scientifically credible. Now, I'm not going to dive into this today because here in a couple of weeks, we're going to spend a whole morning talking about science and faith. A lot of that will tie in with the Bible. Um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to put it in our list today. Um, it is scientifically credible. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Be back next week. Number four, uh, the Bible is, the in, is inspired by God. Okay, the Bible is inspired by God. Now, some people would, uh, critics again would say, whoa, you really can't prove that, okay? You know, can't use Scripture to prove Scripture. That's kind of circular reasoning. But there, I believe there is some evidence that we can talk about. Second uh, Timothy 3.16, a very uh, familiar verse with four believers, uh, says this, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So uh, the Bible does tell us, hey, it is from Him. What, what Scripture is Paul talking about there when he's talking to Timothy? He may be there specifically referring back to the Old Testament. That's what they would have. But it actually goes a little further than that if you dig in, and it seems to be saying that all things, all Scripture, all those things deemed as Scripture are breathed uh, from God, from God, given from God. Well, how do we know that? How do we know the Bible we have is from Him? I think one of those evidences is prophecy. Prophecy, the foretelling of something that will happen in the future, is of God. Peter talks about that over in Second Peter chapter 1, Verse 20 and following, he says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Man didn't come up with it. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, prophecy, the foretelling of something that's going to happen in the future, comes from God. So if there's something in a document, that is foretelling something that's going to happen that is provable, then you have something that is supernatural. It's got to be from God. Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, he talks about a city called Tyre. Tyre. City by the sea is a very known city, a very, um, uh, again, a port city, a very important city. And he tells about its destruction. It's going to be attacked, and then it's going to be attacked again. And when it's attacked again, it's going to be totally demolished. And a matter of fact, it's going to be so demolished, uh, Ezekiel's prophecy says uh, that the debris, the rubble from the city is going to be pushed into the sea. Well, Nebuchadnezzar comes along just a few years after this and attacks the city and does indeed uh, break through the walls and, and uh, destroys it, destroys the people. Rebuilds, and hundreds of years later, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great attacks the city. Now, when Alexander the Great attacks the city, he doesn't just breach the walls and kill the people. He destroys the city. 
reduces it to rubble. Now, the people in the city, many of them were able to escape. Matter of fact, what they did is they escaped to an island that was also a city of Tyre, and, so, and thousands of them made it out to the island. Alexander the Great was having issues trying to get his ships in to be able to, to defeat them, and, and they were well fortified out there. And so what did he do? He instructed his men to begin to push the rubble of the city into the sea, creating a land bridge so that his men could then go across, attack, and kill them. Just like Ezekiel prophesied would happen. Did he know that was prophesied? Was Alexander the Great going, well, we've got to do it this way because the Bible says that? No, 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 no. Not at all. There's prophecy after prophecy. We could talk all about the prophecies just surrounding Jesus. His virgin birth, his born, being born in Bethlehem. He would uh, be preceded by a messenger. He would perform miracles. He would enter Jerusalem riding a donkey. He would be rejected. He would be betrayed by a friend. He would be spit on and beaten. He would die for our sin. He would be killed by crucifixion. That was prophesied before crucifixion had ever even been invented yet. There's no mathematician that can come up with the, the, the mathematical equation to say what the chances are of somebody fulfilling all these prophecies. It can't be done. And all these prophecies just speak to that the Bible is the Word of God, inspired by Him. Now, the last one is this, and this one may seem a little more subjective, but it is this, the Bible changes lives. The Bible changes lives. Some of you are here today, listening to this today, because the Bible, God's Word has spoken into you, and it's changed you. And you could come up, and you could give testimony of how God's Word penetrated your heart and changed your life. And there's been countless people throughout the years that have that kind of a testimony. Jesus, over in John 17, 17, praying in this prayer, he says this to God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What's he saying there? He says, Father, change them, sanctify them, change them, change them, mold them, God, with your word, with your scriptures. That's the intent of, of this book we have that God has given us. His word is to change us. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 that we mentioned earlier again says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction and for training for righteousness. All right, bringing about change in our lives as we read it. Verse 17, the man of, uh, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The God's word, the intent of God's word is to change us, to become more like him. And to be ready to be used by Him for His purpose and His glory. This book will change you. It gives us answers that we need for this life, for managing our emotions, handling our money, breaking bad habits, finding fulfillment in this life, experiencing God's forgiveness, receiving eternal life. And the list goes on of all the things that we can find in this book that can change our life. Now, we can line up all these truths, all these facts, all, and, and we can talk about so many more things. 
And still many will say, no, I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to allow this book into my life, uh, maybe because it might change me. There's some of those. But, not, but I'm not going to trust it. And many, again, have moved past the dealing with the facts because to some degree they've discovered that it's really hard to argue with those. But what they have moved to is dealing with culture. That seems to be where most of the arguments are coming from today, is the cultural issues with the Bible. Tim Keller, a preacher up in New York, does a marvelous job in, in laying this out. And he goes this far, and he deals with many, many skeptics up where he's at in, in New York. And and he asks those who struggle with the Bible culturally, who look at it and say, well, you know what, look what God does, this mean God, if he's like that, I don't want to follow a God like that, even if it is his word. He says, what I want to, what I want to ask those skeptics to do is just consider several things. Number one, he says this, consider it doesn't teach what you think it teaches. Consider that it doesn't teach what you think it teaches. Now, there's a number of issues in the Bible that, uh, again, people in this world love to use to um, refute it. Let me just grab a couple. Um, go back to the Old Testament, and there's polygamy, okay, multiple wives. And then what is known as uh, primogeniture, okay? Primogeniture is the, um, uh, the practice of when a father dies, a uh, patriarch dies, everything goes to the oldest son, and he, uh, and he is left to, to rule over the family and to take care of the family. Uh, some people look at, uh, many will look at both those and go, well, you know, the Bible is so against women and, and, you know, and this messed up way of, you know, dealing with your kids. And, and so we have to look at this and say, okay, is this really what the Bible is teaching, that Okay, guys, go out and get you a couple wives. It's all good. Now, let's look at it. Every time you have polygamy, you have a disaster. <laughs> you have issues. And every time, think about whenever God does speak into a situation where there is primogeniture. What does he do whenever he goes to select somebody to be used for his purpose? He always goes to the youngest. David, Jacob, but on a list. What you really see God doing is he is, as Tim Keller says, he is subverting the cultural norm. He's looking at this culture and saying, polygamy, really? I wouldn't do that. It's going to mess. It's, it's not going to be good. It's not going to turn out good. And so God is actually not happy with some of the, many of the things that we're not happy with whenever we, we read about them. And so again, consider that it doesn't really teach what you think it teaches. Dive in what's really happening. Second thing is this, consider that you are misunderstanding because of your own cultural blinders. Your own cultural blinders, that we look at it all through how we see it and how we see the world, our own, our own world view. Probably the the. One of the good examples here is slavery. Many today would look at uh, the Bible and say, well, the Bible uh, condones slavery. I mean, it, I mean, Paul said, slaves, obey your masters. I mean, <laughs> how do you get around that one, you know? 
The only time that Paul speaks into an actual master-slave relationship was whenever he's talking to Philemon and Onesimus. And we see that interchange and and his encouragement, uh, Paul's encouragement for uh, Philemon to, to let Onesimus free. And what we begin to see is not a, what we would call a um, new world slavery, the slavery that we know today, but what we see is more of an indentured servanthood where people serve others to pay off debt. Um, Murray Harris has a book called Slave of Christ, and he says this, In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners. Did you hear that? And held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at, at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly and were not socially segregated. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. What you hear is what is spoken about as slavery in, uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament. There is bad slavery, okay, that God does obviously um, does not condone. But what we read about in the New Testament, that the word slave is used, maybe that's not even the right word that should be used there, is so different than what we know of as new, uh, this new world slavery that is race-based, that uh, is, was begun and resourced through kidnapping, okay? Uh, African slavery, kidnapping. We know the Bible speaks about that. And some would say, well, didn't Christians back in the day use the Bible to defend slavery? Yeah, some of them did. With their cultural blinders on, they were able to defend it. But it was Christians who took the blinders off read the Bible for what it says, and said, this isn't good. That began to take it down. Are we looking at it through our own cultural blinders? And then the last one is this, and this is a big sentence, grab, grab hold of it. Consider that you may be offended because of an unexamined assumption of the superiority of your cultural moment. Did you get that? The superiority of your cultural moment. When we look at our culture, our life, and think, and maybe we don't think this, but we portray this, our culture is better than everybody else's. And the culture that I believe in and I live in is better than what we read about in the Bible. And so we approach the Bible in that way with this mindset of cultural superiority and how could they be that way and what it does is it causes us not even to try to to examine their culture to understand their culture we just write off their culture because it's not like ours tim keller says this if the bible is from god i love this if the bible is from god therefore not the product of any one culture Okay? An author cannot write into a book without allowing their culture in. If the Bible is from God, therefore not the product of any one culture, wouldn't it offend every culture at some point? Therefore, when you read the Bible and find one part outrageous, isn't that proof it's from God? Think about that. Bible, if 
it's from God, speaks against every culture at some point. Because it's not written by man from one cultural standpoint. We can look at this book and we could, we could spend a lot more time talking about facts and archaeology and, and all, just all the things that support it. And, and you can be sitting here and you say, well, yeah, I know it's true. But the question is, have you allowed it to change you? Are you taking it in and allowing God to work through it to change you? Are you taking time to think, to think upon God's Word, to allow it to penetrate your heart, to allow God to do a great work in you? Listen, if the Bible is true, it changes everything. Did you hear that? If the Bible is true, it changes everything. The way I see the culture, the way I make decisions, the way I treat others, the way I approach lost people, it changes everything. Has it changed you? Father in heaven, God, help us to use our brains. Help us, God, to examine your word. God, in this time, as we examine your word and look at it, God, may, may though, for those of us who are believers, may it only strengthen our faith in you, our faith in your word, our faith in your plan, God, what you're wanting to do in this world and what you're wanting to do in our lives. God, for those who are here who wrestle with your Scripture and this book and whether it's true and whether they are going to allow it to be a part of their life, God, may, may you work in them. May they have open minds, open hearts. May they think and allow you to work in them. God, we thank you for this book. We thank you for your plan that brought it about, that we can have it today to only build our faith in you. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.